0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, it's a critical flaw in that little piece of software tucked far, far away in your system that you never have to worry about until now. We'll tell you why image tragic is a major pain. Then there's more flaws in OpenSSL, and fraudsters are stealing tax data from the motherlode. Then we've got a great batch of your questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on May 5th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Welcome back. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello. How are you, well-traveled man? How are you feeling? Did you get any con oh, crowd I'm or good. anything? Good. No? Good. Well, we, I feel like you and I haven't done this show in about a year. <laughs> you It's know only you've been like, like three weeks. But... I, know, you know, I know. We didn't miss a beat, but just when you get into something every single week and then you go a while, I'm, I'm just all a mess. I don't know what to do. So I thought just to sort of stabilize out, maybe just to sort of get my feet, uh, maybe we just start with the news. Maybe we just, yep. just start with news because we have well, an that's interesting what we always one. do. So. <laughs> hmm. Maybe that's why it feels so good. And this yeah. first one, image trick? What's image what tra- tragic? Image tragic. What's image yes. tragic? What's image tragic? So, Noah, so Ed, there's
1: an application called um, Image Magic. Yeah, and I'm familiar with so Image Magic. Image Magic is a yeah. very popular suite of applications for working with images. Right. And it's used by a huge number of websites to do things like convert, process, and resize mm-hmm. images that are uploaded by users. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a forum letting you pick an avatar or like your – profile picture on Facebook or uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Twitter or, you know, uploading images and making thumbnails of them for uh, a photo book or whatever it is. It you is know, literally two, the back end magic for processing
0: images. All, yeah. yeah. All there's another the
1: library called LibGD, which is different and so on. But yeah, image magic is a huge thing used by a lot of software. Uh, and it turns out there are multiple vulnerabilities in image magic, uh, which is uh, – you know, used to process these images, and one of the vulnerabilities can lead to remote code execution if uh, it's processing user-submitted images. So it means if I go to your forum and upload an image that maybe isn't actually an image, it's something else, uh, then I can run whatever commands I want on your web server. You're like, be like hmm, I'll just uh, yeah. look at, take a copy of that database that your configuration file, that gives me the username and password for your database, Woo. and then I'll be like, dump that and then send it over here.
0: And What's now going I have on? Have your whole database or whatever. That is a mess, Alan.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, if you use ImageMagick or any other library similarly afflicted, mm-hmm. uh, we recommend you mitigate the known vulnerabilities by uh, doing at least these one of these two things, or preferably both. First, verify all images files uh, begin with the expected magic byte uh, sequences. So, when you get, you know, a PNG or a JPEG. The first couple of bytes of the file tell you what type it is. And that's how programs can tell that, oh, that's a PNG file, and mm-hmm. how this is how we should process it. Uh, so this way, if somebody sends one of these exploit scripts and names it .png, you will detect that it's not a PNG and not process it. Okay. Uh, the other one is use a policy file, which is a configuration for ImageMagick, to disable the vulnerable coders that are part of ImageMagick. Ah, uh, the global policy for ImageMagick is usually in etc/ImageMagick, and they, they provide an example policy file on the website there to disable uh, the ephemeral URL MVG and MSL coders. So uh, ImageMagick released a new version, six point nine point three dash nine, on th- April thirtieth. Uh but it's not clear if it actually completely resolves the vulnerability. It does it, it fixes some not, of it, but it maybe not, not all of it. Uh Well, because they don't know if it's still possible to exploit it.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> you,
1: you have to read the, the, the website there, imagetragic.com, which is what they've named the vulnerability. Kind of cute. Uh, they And they have a FAQ there of why they ended up naming it. Because originally yeah, they, <laughs> they started with just a blog post, but nobody was paying any attention to it. Mm-hmm. And then they then they went and bought the domain and got a logo, and then all of a sudden everybody was paying attention.
0: Oh, no. Dang it, people. <laughs>
1: Yes. Um, but yes, they say insufficient filtering for file names passed to delegate commands allows remote code execution during conversion of several uh, file formats. In particular, ImageMagick allows uh, you to process files with an external library. So if ImageMagick can't handle a certain type, you can have it call a different mm. program. Mm. Uh, this feature is called delegate, uh, it is implemented by basically forking out to the shell and running some command. Um, and then there's a configuration called delegates.xml with the actual values for the different parameters. Uh, due to insufficient checking on the percent m uh, substitution, it's possible to conduct shell command injection. So basically, you know, if one of the delegates is download a file from the internet, it would be like you know wget blah 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 minus o to this file, and then here's the URL. Uh, except for instead of you know example.com slash blah. Uh you put example.com semicolon by uh, you know semicolon mm-hmm. ls minus al mm-hmm. uh, and now that command runs instead.
0: <laughs> That's pretty clever. Pretty yeah. easy.
1: Yeah. So it runs your command in addition to the normal operation, allowing the attacker to do whatever they want. Uh, so I saw an example online where it's like you process this PNG file and it prints out a big scary warning saying, Hey, actually, in addition to processing this PNG file, we also owned your machine. <laughs> Uh, The most dangerous part of ImageMagick is that it supports several formats like SVG and MVG, uh, and probably some others, which allow to include external files from any supported protocol, including delegates. Um, So basically, an SVG, for people that know, is the uh, scalable vector graphics. And uh, the reason why SVGs are awesome is you can resize them to any size and they keep 100% of the quality. Because what an SVG actually is, is basically an XML file saying, draw these shapes. So, you know, if you make your logo as an SVG, it'll be like, oh, so there's a circle and then there's a triangle and a triangle, uh, or whatever. You know, it's basically a bunch of instructions on how to draw it. And then you can just scale that to any size and it redraws it at perfect quality. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a regular, like, JPEG, if you resize it, it looks like ass. Right, (laughs) A blurry. Yeah. So, the thing is, SVGs and MVGs can have... Includes and so on. Like if you scroll down a little bit, you see the MVG there. You can say, "Oh, look! I'm going to include some file." Or mm-hmm. yeah, Vi- file underscore read dot MVG. Yeah. yeah, and a bunch of these other ones. Uh, and so they can include remote files from websites, so that the attacker can get more code injected into your uh, system, mm-hmm. or they can use it uh, so that when Image Magic is done processing the image and gives you the the you know resized image to download the content will actually be some file that's read off the hard drive of your web server.
0: That'd be a great way to return, like in this case, Etsy password.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so you're, oh, it's like, oh yeah, I just downloaded avatar.png, oh, except right. for actually <laughs> the content is your password file.
0: Uh-huh. hmm Hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, so there's a bunch of vulnerabilities, uh, and uh, you should check out the website for more details, and you should uh, update your image magic, but also keep an eye out for the next couple days. Uh, there might be a second update to fix this better or more I guess the rest of the way
0: I was looking at some of the stories you've included in the show notes and like um, all of them pretty much have updates from like the last 24 hours Mm -hmm. of stuff that's been going on so yeah this is still happening still going on right now
1: yes Uh. so uh, there's also as part of the FAQ they ask why are you disclosing the vulnerability like this why is it uh, not you know coordinated disclosure where we tell everybody hey you need to watch out and update image magic right uh, and then you know, don't tell anybody what the problem is until later. Uh, they say, we've collectively determined that these vulnerabilities are available to individuals other than the persons who discovered them. Uh, an unknowable number of people having access to these vulnerabilities makes this a critical issue for everyone using the software.
0: In other words, it's already out there? Yeah. Uh, they're pretty
1: sure it's already out there. And uh,
0: Who is us in the FAQ, it asks, and it says us is we. We <laughs> <Yes>. is us. <laughs>
1: Uh, Yeah, it's uh, the people that we're working on. There was uh, somebody from a Russian mailing list and somebody else. Hmm. Putin? Probably probably, probably Vladimir Putin. Some people
0: working on stuff. My my image magic. No, uh, no, no, don't nod my image magic. No, that's supposed to just run in the background and something I'll never have to think about. Come on, Alan, what are you doing here? Uh, Well, thank you for telling us about this. I had seen uh, Image Tragic floating around and I I had not seen what it was about. I figured... I figured there was something afoot. I do kind of like their logo in sight, imagetragic.com. Yeah, well, uh, the
1: wizard is, I think, based on the the regular image. Right. Right. right
0: it's good. It's good. It's, good. Yep. it's funny that they say they didn't get much traction until after they launched yes. uh, the name. And now they have, of course, a Twitter account. Let's see, their Twitter yep. account's only got 345 followers, though. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: I, 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 I'm not expecting many updates on
0: this vulnerability. No, one, but you know so. what else is interesting is not only would this be a great way to get it, but look what, they, what the actual name of the account is, the CVE name. Yep. That is actually pretty good. I'm going to follow it just for that. Boom. Followed. Pow. Because I think that's clever. All right. Well, why don't we take a moment I'm to, I to go register every CVE number for the rest of the year? Oh, That's right. Yeah. 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 What you need to do is just think of really good puns on open source project names and then just register ah, yes. a few of those. <laughs> and then have them ready and be, and yes. be like, hey, right. has your security company found a flaw
1: yeah. in this, this
0: tool? You you want to have, have a great this name? domain right. <laughs> and I've already
1: made up a logo for you.
0: <laughs> Dude, it's, it's, uh, it's a new goldmine. You just got to get to the right one. Uh, All right. Speaking of clever things, let me tell you about our friends over at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support this show and get yourself a great discount over at Ting. I've been enjoying the Nexus 5X now for a couple of weeks on the Ting network. It's just a great phone. And I'll tell you something else. If you haven't had a chance yet to play with Android M, Holy smokes is the battery life better. I mean phenomenally better. Sometimes I leave my phone unplugged overnight, and I wake up in the morning and I still have eighty two percent battery. It's uh I the, mean the new Doze features they add in Android N are great. This is why I love the Nexus line. You get a Nexus directly from like wherever you want, New Google Play, or even Ting directly, and you just activate it on the Ting network. You go there right now, techsnap.ting.com, you get yourself a SIM card for like nine bucks, and then you get a twenty five dollar service credit because you're just getting the SIM. And then you can put your new phone on Ting with no contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. So if you've got Wi-Fi like I do here at work and you've got Wi-Fi at home and you don't make a lot of calls, you've got three phones and it's like 30 bucks a month. Linux Fest Northwest is like my busy, busy, busy on the phone coordinating, talking to people, especially during the event. I, th- I think I last time I checked, I think our bill is like $40, somewhere around 41 bucks for three phones. During my busy quote-unquote time. Now, thankfully, LinuxFest had really great Wi-Fi this year, and so that definitely helped. But when their Wi-Fi wasn't working, the Ting signal was awesome. And because they have CDMA and GSM networks to choose from, if you even know what those things mean, then you already have all the knowledge you need to be armed with to go look up coverage maps and decide which one's going to be better in your area. So, for example, I can get about 11 megabits on CDMA here at the studio. I put the GSM SIM in there and I'm getting 22 megabits down on cellular network. I'm not talking about the wired connection over Wi-Fi. I am talking about my mobile cellular connection and I only pay for what I use and there's no contract. You can go get an existing phone with Ting or you can bring your own if you've got it compatible. They have a device checker where you can check all of that stuff. Average monthly Ting bill per device, 23 bucks. Now, remember, you only pay them for what you use, and there's no contract. They've got everything from SIM cards all the way up to the latest phones. Feature phones, too, if you just need something to make calls, and we'll have like a week-long battery, and an amazing dashboard to manage all of it. TechSnap.ting.com is where you go. No mysterious line items. Unlimited devices on one plan. Just $6 for each line. A great control panel. Excellent, excellent customer service. Super, super customer service. No overcharges or penalties. Just what you use. No bundling. No ETFs. you want a hotspot, you just turn it on. Just use the features. No gimmicks techsnap.ting.com Go check them out. Take control over your wireless experience and go own your devices. It makes a big difference. techsnap.ting.com and thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I really appreciate it. I have really been enjoying the new device. Every time I get a new device and I put it on Ting, uh, it feels like such an obvious way that the consumer experience should work. Just so problem-free, so in my control. I really like it. techsnap.ting.com Okay, when I think of ADP, I think secure. I think protecting information and data and consumers. When I think ADP, I think of a brand I can trust until I read Brian Krebs's blog.
1: (laughs) When I think of ADP, I just think of the company that processes my paycheck.
0: (laughs) I know. I I think I want to think that they are all of those things, though. You know, I mean, that's what I want to believe. I want to believe it, Alan. (laughs) But now, no, we can't. Actually, it looks like fraudsters have stolen tax and salary data. From ADP, so uh, not so good, according to Brian Krebs. What's going on here? Uh, So this one actually kind of reminds us of the IRS one, uh, where
1: people would sign up for your account before you did. Mm, Yes. Uh, And then actually, they kind of used it in the same way. Uh, So this one says, identity thieves stole tax and salary data from the payroll giant ADP by registering accounts in the names of employees at more than a dozen of uh, ADP's customers. ADP says the incident occurred because the victim companies all mistakenly published sensitive ADP account information online that made these uh, firms easy targets for these tax rosters. Uh, So ADP provides payroll, tax, and benefit administration for more than 640,000 companies. Uh, Last week, U.S. Bancorp, or U.S. Bank, Uh, The nation's fifth largest commercial bank warned some of its employees that their W-2 data had been stolen thanks to a weakness in ADP's customer portal.
0: Ah, is this sort of what tipped us off? Is this what sort of started the ball rolling?
1: Gotcha. Uh, I think uh, one of the employees at the bank forwarded the letter they got to Krebs, and that's how it all started. Or how Krebs got into it anyway. Right. Uh, ID thieves are interested in your W-2 data because it contains much of the information needed to fraudulently request a large tax refund from the IRS. Uh, But in someone else's name, right? Stealing tax data. We've covered that before a number of times. Uh, U.S. Bank Corp. said, Since April 19th, uh, we have been actively investigating a security incident with our W-2 provider, ADP. During the course of that investigation, we have learned that an external W-2 portal maintained by ADP may have been utilized by unauthorized individuals to access your W-2 data, uh, which may have been used to file a fraudulent income tax return under your name. Uh, the incident originated because ADP offered an external online portal that is being exploited. For individuals who have never used the external portal, a registration had never been established. Criminals were able to take advantage mm-hmm. of this situation to use credential, uh, um, confidential personal information from other sources to establish a registration in your name at ADP. Once the uh, fraudulent registration was established, they were able to view and download your W-2. Huh. Uh, so, ADP emphasizes that the fraudsters needed to have the victim's personal data, including their name, date of birth, and social security number, uh, to successfully create an account. ADP stresses that this personal data did not come from ADP and that thieves uh, themselves appeared to already possess this information when they created the unauthorized accounts at ADP's portal.
0: Does that imply to you an inside job, potentially? Uh, not necessarily. It, you know,
1: ADP is large enough that... If you got data from a bunch of people at any business, it's likely yeah, there's they, probably a lot of places ADP that or it. one of the big competitors of it will have that uh, employee's data. Yeah, that seems fair. This is, so uh, according to ADP, new users need to be in possession of two things, in addition to the victim's personal data, at a minimum in order to create an account. The first is a custom company-specific link provided by ADP. So basically a URL with a special code in it. Uh, and if you don't have that, then you can't register for that company. Uh, and then secondly is a static code assigned to the customer by ADP. So basically you need a URL and this password that's shared by everybody at the company <laughs> uh, in order to register your account. Uh, the problem, ADP's chief security officer says, uh, seems to stem from ADP customers that both deferred the signup process. So normally you sign up all your employees for accounts when you start using ADP. Uh, but you can decide not to and have people just sign up if they care. Uh, and that's where this problem came from. Uh, so the bank uh, deferred the sign-up process for most of their employees. And at the same time, inadvertently published online the link in the uh, company code. As a result, for users who had never registered, criminals were able to register them and uh, with you know fairly basic personal information and access their W-2 data.
0: Yeah, this all this all does sound like just sort of standardized info that if you kind of figured out how it works. I mean, because most companies are well, probably in opting not to sign up. Who wants to waste their employees' time and money? Nobody well, is-
1: I think, in particular, you'd normally bulk sign up that requires sure. you know with database knowledge to actually program it in, right? Not
0: to mention the time of your staff to organize and put all that together. Yeah.
1: Well, in particular, the problem comes here is uh, is it, um, the bank says we viewed the code as an identification code, not as an authentication code. Right? It was, we thought the number was just how, you, how ADP knows it's from our company, not how um, you prove, uh, how you, you know, authorize that this person is definitely from our company. So basically, the bank posted uh, the link and the secret code uh, on their internal employee website for the convenience of their employees so they could access their W 2 information.
0: I can right, see that. So that seems kind a
1: of secret, r- it, a secret. Can only be protected if everyone who has it knows it's actually a
0: secret. Exactly. That's I could see that the company doesn't know. They can. Get, in this case, the bank, they have no idea. Why would so they? It's like uh, if you want if employees want to sign up to get their W twos online, they have to
1: go to this URL and enter this code. So you're like, okay, we'll post that up in a memo or on 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 our website so our employees can find it easily. Which is and probably like, their most efficient whoa, way of communicating
0: secret? with a bunch of employees. So, right. like, Especially, you know, the bank has like 64,000 employees. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they got to get the word out somehow. <laughs> uh, but it turns out, oh, those are secret and
1: you shouldn't just post them all over the place. Wow. Uh, So, ADP Portal, like so many other authentication systems, relies entirely on static data that is available on just about every American for less than $4 in the criminal underground. Like your social security number, date of birth, address, etc. Yeah, high school, whatever. Yeah. It's true that companies should not... Uh, no better than to publish such a crucial link online along with the company's ADP code. But then again, there's are those are also very weak authenticators, hmm. especially since the password would be the same for every
0: single user at the yeah, company. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Yeah, uh, are they at least uh, per company? Did you get the impression? Yes. there? Okay, yeah, the the link and code are per company. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs>
1: ADP security officer said, uh, ADP does offer an additional layer of authentication, a mm-hmm. personal identification code, oh, wow. basically another static code that is assigned to each employee. So each employee gets a pin number. Uh, he added that ADP is trialing a service that will ask anyone, uh, requesting a new account to successfully answer a series of knowledge-based questions, uh, based on information that only the real account holder is supposed to know. Hmm. Obvious problem there is the supposed to know information, You know, a lot of that stuff, you know, can be found with Facebook or Twitter or just, you know, digging into the person. Uh, The IRS learned this the hard way. They've already had to replace two different authentication systems that use these knowledge-based authentication questions uh, because they can be too easily guessed by attackers.
0: Yeah, that seems seems like we really need the to The security questions
1: that, that uh, you get asked when you call up your bank and stuff are pretty lame. Yeah. you know? So uh, the bank was like, how many accounts do you have? It's like, how often does the answer not like
0: between one and four? Right. And- right. As we've seen too, it's really uh, – it feels like there's degrees of how much it matters like when it comes to the IRS or your payroll information. But we've also seen issues with Amazon and iCloud and PayPal and others too. So yes. it's all across uh,
1: the board. Apple was way too eager to help customers rather than protect them. Uh So, yeah, uh, Krebs' closing note here is uh, it's truly a measure of the challenge ahead in improving online authentication that so many organizations are still looking backwards to obsolete and insecure approaches like knowing people's birthdays. ADP's logo includes their clever slogan, a more human resource. Uh, it's hard to think of a more apt uh, mission statement for the company. After all, it's high time we started moving away from asking people to robotically regurgitate the same static identifiers over and over and shift to a more human approach that focuses on dynamic elements of authentication. But alas, uh, that's fodder for a future post. But interestingly, uh, that image you were showing at the bottom there, uh, after Krebs' report, apparently it caused a bit of a a drop in ADP's stock price. As you can see, that sharp drop right there. (laughs)
0: Uh, but it quickly recovered and went back to normal. But uh, I wish it actually had more of a permanent sting, yeah. so that companies were more incentivized to do something about this kind of stuff and well, think about it.
1: When things. it came out that it wasn't really ADP's fault, you know, yeah. they, they didn't actually get breached, uh, and yeah, that's it, true, because their customers were doing the wrong thing. Now it's you know partly ADP's fault for not stressing to the customers that that information, those links have to be secret and so on. But
0: I agree. <laughs> Well, uh, so now I don't feel so great about the sophistication of some of these very important systems, Alan. Thank you very much for that. Any other thoughts on that particular story? Uh, Not on that one, no. Shout out to Mr. Krebs, too, for getting quite a bit of uh, attention on Mm -hmm. that one. I'll give you something to give some attention towards. That's DigitalOcean, next sponsor right here on the show. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get a super fast server up in the cloud. That means they have really great servers that you can get your, your instance on. They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, uh, Germany. they got some in Toronto's. they got some all over the place. Uh, and they're super, super nice data centers with 40 gigabit E-connections to the hypervisor tier one bandwidth and a really nice interface to manage all of it. It is The best. Plus, they have a great API to take advantage of with tons of good apps built around that API that makes it really easy for you to do things like control your systems from your phone, from your desktop. I love their new DOCTL command line interface to manage all of the functionality of your droplets right from your command line. Perfect for the drop down terminal or when you're just SSH into your server and you want to execute a snapshot before you do an upgrade. Those kinds of things are no-brainers. They have one-click application deployments, too, of entire application stacks. Really easy, simple stuff really standardized, too. It's not special, like, homebrewed code that only DigitalOcean has. I love well, yes. it.
1: Uh, You know, in particular, when they hadn't got around to having uh, newer FreeBSD uh, 10.3 images yet, you can just use the regular FreeBSD updating mechanism and update, and it doesn't break because it's just standard FreeBSD.
0: <laughs> Speaking of FreeBSD, uh, this is a little old now, but a uh, comparative introduction to FreeBSD for Linux users might be valuable to some folks in our audience. Yeah. Uh, they have really good the, documentation. Like,
1: Nothing that's in there specific to DigitalOcean. It's all just, hey, I've heard about FreeBSD, but I want to try it, right. but I only know about Linux. And it basically, it's like a little um, phrase book. Like, like
0: a quick little hand know. guide kind of a thing. Yeah, a
1: hand guide to, to uh,
0: yeah. I think translate. it's great. I think it's a great idea. Uh, They have a whole bunch. uh, It's part of a a seven series of getting started with FreeBSD over the DigitalOcean Community Center. They have so much great documentation for everything, including Mm -hmm. like brand new stuff like Ubuntu 16.04. All good. Ready to go. I've just recently spun up two new servers. They're my on-to-go Linux infrastructure. And uh, you just got to try it to believe it. Here's the great part. We've got a deal for you. If you use our promo code SNAPOcean, that's one word, lowercase, SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. And with that $10 credit, you can try out, say, their $5 rig, two months for free. It starts at $5. In less than 55 seconds, you'll have a machine spun up. And at $5, you can get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And then the pricing is really straightforward from there. I think the latest one, I've, I finally deployed my largest one yet, which is the uh, $40 a month one. Uh, I know. I feel like a baller. But uh, most, most of my rigs, uh, in fact, almost all the other ones are $5 a month rigs. Um, I think I did $10 a month rig once for Minecraft, but I can't recall now because they once I have them set up, they just are so easy to maintain, and they're really easy to expand if I need to. that it's not really super important. I just mention it because the pricing is so, so straightforward, and they even offer hourly pricing, high volume pricing, which is great, and little pro tip. They have an early beta sign up for their new block storage service that's coming soon. You can go check that out too. Just use the promo code SnapOcean over there, so that way they know we sent you. DigitalOcean.com, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I almost feel like we need a dedicated OpenSSL segment these days. Uh, we've got another one from the third of May, which uh, just a couple of days ago. Yep. What's going on in OpenSSL land?
1: Yeah, Uh, so another series of vulnerabilities, although these two have uh, interesting histories behind them. Hmm. Uh, So, you know, there's more advisories, as usual. We've kind of come to expect that. uh, (laughs) I guess so. Two high uh, severity ones. The first one is a memory corruption in the ASN.1 encoder, which is the uh, interchange format that most uh, crypto stuff uses. And they say, uh, this issue affects versions of OpenSSL prior to April 2015. Uh, the bug causing this, the vulnerability was fixed in uh, on April 18th of 2015, so a year ago, okay. and released as part of the June uh, 11th, 2015 security updates. Okay. Uh, the security impact of the bug was not known at the time. So this this highlights a different problem with OpenSSL in that <laughs> Non-security changes happen to go out with the security updates, right. uh, and in this case, this little change that snuck in actually turned out to not uh, to cause a new vulnerability and not realize.
0: Am I misremembering, or is this not the first time we've talked about this particular problem on the show? Like that seems like we've mentioned yeah. that before. Uh, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's been a problem had, with OpenSSL. Why are the they not time. changing that?
1: Uh, well, they haven't changed it yet. So Do you? Say.
0: Do you, I mean, do you get the sense that there's enough pressure where they could actually restructure? I've, so when I've talked to projects about this before, the line that I've gotten before from these projects is, well, there's so much about our release cadence and the way developers contribute and the way we have it all structured that if we were to break it all up and say these, this is a security track and this is a feature track, it would simply just be too much work for us, and so therefore we're not doing it. And, and then that's where it sits. That's just where those kinds of things yeah, stay. But you know, at FreeBSD, we do this
1: with three versions at a time. And there are not that many people. It's yeah. not really that hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, know, maybe uh, one day then. Git supports branches. Right. It's really freaking easy.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. You have this is, you know, OpenSSL 0.1. or zero dot one dot And uh, you know, we're not adding new features to that. We only put security fixes. And uh so when there's a security fix, we'll commit it up here and then merge it down there and it's pretty much done. You know, I'm sure it could be handled. Anyway, uh, so it's interesting that they they fixed part of this and didn't think it was actually a problem. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so in previous versions of OpenSSL, the ASN.1 encoder uh, encoding the value zero represented as a negative integer, so negative zero, uh, can cause a buffer underflow uh, with an out of bounds write to the uh, integer type. The ASM1 parser does not normally create negative zeros when parsing input, and therefore an attacker cannot trigger this bug. However, a second independent bug revealed that the ASN1 parser uh, can misinterpret a large universal tag as a negative zero value. Mm. Uh, Large universal tags are not present in any common ASN1 structures, such as X509 certificates, but are accepted as part of any structure. So someone could create a certificate that did have one. Therefore, if any application deserializes untrusted ASN1 structures uh, containing any data field uh, the, uh, and later reserializes them, an attacker may cause memory corruption that is uh, potentially exploitable with some malloc implementations. So, uh, applications that parse or re-encode X509 certificates are known to be vulnerable. Applications that verify RSA signatures on X509 certificates may also be vulnerable, uh, which basically would be every use of X509 certificates involves verifying the signature. <laughs> uh, however, only certificates with valid signatures trigger ASM1 re-encoding, and hence the bug. So, an invalid certificate might not cause the problem. Uh, Since OpenSSL's default TLS X509 chain verification code verifies the certificate chain from root to leaf, TLS handshakes uh, could not be targeted with a valid certificate issued by trusted certificate authorities. Uh, But yeah, so this vulnerability is a combination of two bugs, neither of which individually had security impact. The first bug, the mishandling of negative zero integers, was reported to OpenSSL uh, and by two different people in 2015. Uh, the second issue, mishandling the large universal tag, was found using LibFuzzer uh, and reported on the public issue tracker uh, March of 2016. Oh, okay. Uh, the hmm. fact that these two issues combined presents a security vulnerability was reported by David Benjamin from Google on March 31st. Uh, the fixes were then developed by OpenSSL Development Team and David Benjamin from Google.
0: Hmm. That googs.
1: Yeah. So... uh Something we fixed earlier turns out to have actually been a security bug when combined with this other bug, and uh, the two of them going together is quite nasty.
0: So is this part of Project Zero? Is that worth- uh,
1: No, okay. not specifically. All right.
0: Uh,
1: and then the second one is the padding oracle and aes CBC Mac
0: check. Okay, okay.
1: So aes or the AES new instruction, is basically an instruction on newer CPUs that allows to... Uh, it basically has some of the algorithm of AES uh, built into the processor so that you can do it faster. So instead of doing all the math manually, you say, hey, processor, here's some stuff, encrypt it for me or decrypt it for me, and it does it. And if you do that mode and use the message authentication code, the check isn't quite right. Mm. So a uh, an attacker who is in a man-in-the-middle position, so not that easy to do always, but definitely possible, can use a padding oracle, uh, which basically... By changing the amount of padding and keep sending it, they could eventually figure out uh, where your data is set up. It uh, could uh, decrypt traffic when the connection uses AES CBC cipher and the server supports AES and I. Uh, so, this issue was introduced as part of a fix for the Lucky 13 padding attack back in 2013. <laughs> okay. So, when they fixed uh, Lucky 13 in 2013, uh, they accidentally introduced this vulnerability. So, the padding check uh, that was in uh, place before that was working fine uh, was rewritten to be in constant time. So, um, that's something that's important in in encryption is normally when you do operations on a computer, depending on like how many bytes you copy or whatever, it'll take a different amount of time. Uh, Specifically, if you send an invalid uh, message and it goes to process it, it'll fail very quickly and you'll know that, oh, this, that was definitely invalid. Whereas if you send uh, a properly encoded message, uh, it takes some time to decrypt, right? And so um, in encryption, we use this system called constant time where you purposely make it always take this amount of time so that an attacker can't tell whether it succeeded or failed based on how quickly it finishes. Because if you send junk, it'll, it'll fail very quickly. And if you send good stuff, it'll take longer. So, by taking the same amount of time either way, you don't leak that information, which is called a side channel, Mm -hmm. uh, to the attacker. So, the padding check was rewritten to be in constant time by making sure that uh, it always does the same number of bytes uh, are read and compared against each other, uh, either the MAC or the padding. Uh, But it no longer checked that there was enough data to have both the MAC and padding bytes. Hmm. And so, by cheating, you could... uh, tell that it, the Mac didn't check out or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so this allowed this attack, which I think uh, it doesn't say in the advisory, but I think it allowed you to decrypt 16 bytes at a time. Okay. <laughs> Just do it repeatedly <laughs> yeah. and, and get all messages. Yep. Whole message. yep. yep. Um, but yeah, so this one, the second one was, oh, we figured out that back in 2013 when we fixed the vulnerability, we broke... AES and high, which is basically almost every server uses that because it mm. saves a lot of CPU time. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody uses CBC cipher, so uh, you know maybe it's not as big a deal. But yeah, that's uh, rated high criticality as well. Mm. Uh, but it's interesting to see that both of these uh, high criticality bugs are related to previous changes. And in the one case, it definitely seems in a rush to fix. This, the Lucky 13 bug, they actually introduced a, f- a further flaw into the system. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't detected for three years. <laughs> so it shows that even in the case of, oh, there's this known vulnerability and we're publishing a fix, the fix isn't getting enough code review. At least wasn't in 2013. <laughs> that's, the damn, that's the damning thing, I think. You know. Uh, obviously, nobody, nobody can look at all the code in OpenSSL. There's just too much, right? It's hundreds of thousands of lines. But new stuff uh, coming in. But, yeah, looking at... Small patches that fix a specific known issue, like oh, there's a vulnerability and here's the fix. It definitely seems like uh, those could be looked at a little closer,
0: right? Huh? Yeah. It, uh, what I hate about it is it sort of dispels that myth that uh, open source is more secure because there's thousands of eyes on the code. Uh, it turns out this important stuff only has one or two well, eyes. In it, aggregate, there's thousands. But yes. Well, in particular, it's when it's really
1: complicated code. Nobody wants yeah. to look. Yeah, for sure. And so on.
0: Well. Uh, very nice to have the rundown there, and it is fixed now. And we have the goodness linked in the show notes if you guys would like to see the advisory. There's also some lower-impact ones listed in there as well. Uh, Some uh, EVP encoding updates, uh, a memory leak in
1: ASN1, uh, and one where if you use the EBCDIC uh, system, so that's uh, like certain IBM mainframes or something. It doesn't affect regular x86 computer so mm-hmm. you don't have to that one mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. yeah a bunch more vulnerabilities to look at and uh, we have a link to uh ours article as well if you want more background break, and it, so break, it, break
0: it down from ours any other thoughts on that story mr june Uh, nope, that's about it for that one. All righty. Well, let's take a moment and thank iX Systems for sponsoring TechSnap. iX Systems is a great sponsor for this show. They have systems built around Intel's best processors designed for any open source workload you might want to throw at it. It is a great sponsor for this show because if you guys have ever been in the position of having to recommend, build, spec out, price, design a system, you know it could be done better and iX Systems does it better. They take a white glove approach. To the entire process. I got to see a little bit of IX Systems gear at uh, Linux Fest Northwest. That was pretty cool. And I'll have, I, uh, I'll have to point you over to their blog as well, where Michael Dexter has uh, a recent post from the 29th about clearly defined storage. And I, you, I, you probably actually had a chance to already look at this one.
1: Uh, no, not that one,
0: actually. Yeah, I, I haven't yet either. But I was uh, just perusing their blog a little bit before we started the show. And uh, this is a, a bang-up post that he's done. So I'll read this after the show. But I'll point you guys to it, too, so you have a chance to take a look at it. A lot of good content over there. iX Systems is a great company filled with experts that can build systems that really do the work you need. The other nice thing you might find when you order a system from iX is they'll actually test it before they ship it to you. What a concept. Yes. They actually will do a little burn-in testing. No, Give them a a call. it's like
1: three days worth.
0: Yeah. Give them a call and see what it's like to start the process. If you're a small business or a home office, something like the FreeNAS or the FreeNAS XL might just be perfect for you. And then they have TrueNAS and other solutions for storage. They have great systems they could build for work applications. Something like Noah. Or Noah geez, today apparently you're Noah. Something like Alan does, like video streaming, things we do here for mm-hmm. production purposes. I love some of the big examples, like I've said, Mike mentioned ago, uh, on their blog that they've posted of just these crazy yep. systems. So it's a real They really span the whole range of products capable. So go check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's the landing page you go to to support this Mm -hmm. show and thank us and thank them for doing a show and let them know you heard about it here. So it's kind of telling them to keep supporting the TechSnap program. But it's also a place where you can download their white paper they had commissioned. It's the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. And – this is 11 key traits that you need to demand from your different providers when you're buying hardware, and it's something worth checking out, and it's something that might help your company down the path of moving over to IX to fulfill those needs. I'd really suggest you try it. If I had known about it back in the day, it would have been my secret weapon. They've been around for a long time. They've got a bunch of great companies and clients. You can check them out on their on their website. They also list some of those. Mozilla, Groupon, Adobe, the FreeBSD Foundation, uh, look at all these. I mean, the list goes on. NASA, the U.S. Army. Uh, it's really it's really something else. GM, Foot Locker, Sony, Warner Brothers, Sega. Even Dr. Phil is an iX Systems customer, and you can go over there and check it out. Check out the list. It's pretty great. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where you go. Learn more about their amazing systems powered by those awesome Intel CPUs at iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. Mm-hmm. Now, we have an extra bonus story for the folks this week, Alan. Yes. Another another one made the news docket. Uh, and, uh, you know, I figure this is probably one that's crossed – a lot of people's minds, how do fraudsters get those uh, CVV numbers and, and use my card? I thought the whole point yeah. of that security number was if you didn't have it, you couldn't use my card. But Exactly. Uh, so this is a not-news story over
1: at Krebs. And he says, a longtime reader recently asked, how do online fraudsters get the three-digit verification code called a CVV or CVV2 uh, that's printed on the back of a credit card uh, if merchants are forbidden from storing this information? And Krebs says the answer, if it's not by phishing or something of that nature, it's probably by installing a web-based keylogger on an online merchant so that all data that the customer submits to the site is copied and sent to the attacker server. So for a bit of background, the CVV is the 3, or in the case of MX4, digit number on the back of your credit card. Uh, This number is not normally used for card present transactions, right? If you go to the supermarket and buy something, that number is not even used. It's not included on the... uh, uh, magnetic stripe or anything like that. Um, so it's not normally used when you have the credit card on you. Uh, but the CVZ, uh, CVV is designed for card, not present transactions, right? So when you buy things online, uh, it's a way to prove that you have the actual credit card, not just the number because you stole it from somewhere, right? The idea is that, uh, this number was never, ever stored anywhere. Uh, so even if in the event of a credit card database getting breached, you know, oh, look, I got this list of credit cards. It's like, well, sure, but they're no use because you don't have the CVV number because that never gets stored in a database. Uh, And then you couldn't use the card for online transactions. Uh, And because you don't have the magnetic stripe stripe data, like you would if you had it uh, like a skimmer at a supermarket or something, uh, then you can't really clone the card either. And so now you have a bunch of useless numbers. However, uh, so basically the CVV is how you prove you have the card in your hand when you're shopping online. Um, uh, this of course works in theory, but just because merchants are supposed, uh, not to store the data, it doesn't mean they don't actually store it.
0: Now, can you break that down? So just because they're using it, well, I thought they don't store any of it really. I thought that's supposed to be, I mean, that's where, this well,
1: uh,
0: you know, they have to store
1: the credit card number to do stuff, to do like the transaction. The yeah.
0: But they're not supposed to ever write
1: down the CVV number in a database or, on paper, anywhere. But
0: I can't. I mean, I very rarely. I mean, it's not uh, not always, but it seems like a lot of systems don't even often ask for my CVV number.
1: Well, no, like uh, except for online stuff, you usually never see it. Yeah, and, you know, Amazon doesn't bother with it. Uh, yeah, yeah okay. more worried about low friction. Yes, so right. Okay. Most
0: most places do
1: because it's a good way to check.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, like I think uh, it's not a stolen card.
0: Newegg might. I can't remember, but I know I yeah, have. Al- yeah, almost every store yeah.
1: does except for Amazon. Yeah, okay. Uh, but see, the vast majority of the time, this CVV data is being stolen by web-based keyloggers. So these are like, you know, when you compromise a website and can inject JavaScript into it, you can then you know put a little botnet into the machine. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, it's, it's a relatively uncomplicated program that behaves much like the uh, banking trojans we see on infected PCs, except it's designed to steal data from the web server rather than from the user. Uh, so while PC trojans like Zeus, for example, siphon information using two major techniques: one, snarfing passwords stored in the browser; and two, conducting you know form grabbing, getting the information as you send it to the website. Uh, the browser-based, uh, the uh, web server-based ones do the same thing. Uh, but they do form grabbing and ripping out that data as it's submitted by the visitor. Right. Either running in the browser of the victim or by running it on the server side where the victim can't even tell it's there. Sure. Huh.
0: Uh,
1: And then, you know, they send it off to their server and then they have the data to attack. Uh, These attacks drive home one immutable point about malware's role in subverting secure connections. Whether resident on a web server or on the end user's computer Mm -hmm. if either endpoint is compromised the game is over for security on that web session. Uh, With PC banking trojans it's all about surveillance on the client side before it's encrypted. Whereas uh, if the bad guys are doing it on the web server side, they're basically getting it after it's been decrypted.
0: And, And yeah. Okay. So in other words, uh, most of the time I – actually, I actually didn't expect it to be I, – I, most of the time it's malware or some sort of uh, attack. I actually expected yeah. it to be something much simpler, like most of these sites are actually storing the CVV code even though they say they're well, not. Just, or, <laughs> know, that's what I thought the answer was going to be. supposed to
1: go through the PCI DSS uh, audit, and if you get caught storing it. Yeah, of it, course. And more importantly, if you got breached and were caught – It just feels like there's no way
0: that audit can keep up with the amount of online retailers that actually exist. And, you know, the
1: question is, do most of the breaches come from a lot of these small places or from a couple of big places?
0: Yeah, right. And we know the answer is both. (laughs) And then also at the other end, you just need to find a retailer if you still want to buy online who's maybe more interested in a low friction shopping experience and doesn't require the CVV code. There's another way around it, right? Is you go somewhere that just doesn't require it. It seems to me um, some standardization and policies around all of this would, and I guess there is some, but it seems like it's just not enough. It's too much variation. It's kind of nice of Mr. Krebs to break that down though. I just kind of, I have wondered it has crossed my mind. And, uh, there is a video in that link in that article too, if people, people want to watch that after the show. Uh, yeah. Any other thoughts? Alan? Nope. All right. Well then why don't we give a plug to, uh, our friends over at the BSD now program, uh, yep. Tracing it back to BSD episode 140 just came out a few minutes ago, hot off the encoder, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything to mention for this episode, sir?
1: Uh, we have a great interview with uh, Sammy Albahara of backtrace.io uh, about post-mortem debugging of when a computer program crashes. Mm-hmm. So this company basically making a, a new way to do it, and uh, it includes a live demo in the video, and it was really, really cool.
0: Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Also, uh, and then all the news and yeah. everything for the week. Yep, yep, <clears throat> including a news item about uh, PF Sense, so a new video series. Or yes, there's a
1: whole video series about PF Sense in there.
0: Cool, BSD now episode 140, a nice solid number to go check it out if you haven't jumped in yet. That's a good one to start. Tracing it back to BSD episode 140 of the BSD program. You can go start that HD download right now. Get more Alan Jude in your face just as this show wraps up we're about at the halfway mark right now, which means it's time for the TechSnap feedback thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the jupiter broadcasting website or even better Reddit, text, and Our first email this week comes in from Jason, and uh, he's got some questions about building a NAS. I've been running a Netgear Ready NAS Business Pro for the last eight years, and it's fantastic. I'm very pleased with it. I've swapped out the drives about four years ago, and now I'm looking at replacing the drives once again. Here's the problem. All the drives, which are on the compatibility list for this unit, are now end of life. And the ones that are still available are really expensive, well, because they can this had me realize that now I'm pushing my luck with the actual NAS chassis. After eight years of operation, the magic smoke is now likely to leak out of the PSU or some major component. This is a NAS that this NAS has been powered up for almost all of those past eight years. <clears throat> Most of the components are all bespoke to Nick here, and I can't just go out of my way to buy a new PSU from Amazon to perform a preventative maintenance. This is the same for all of these NAS type devices from QNAPs and Algae, maybe even the free NAS Mini, I assume. Where reluctantly I have concluded to build my own NAS from quality standard parts so I can perform PM to extend its life. Mm -hmm. Preventative maintenance. I say reluctantly because I like these small, quiet devices, low power consumption, Mm -hmm. tried-and-tested components. They come with nice health monitoring and orange blinky lights next to every drive if it fails. It takes time to design a matching feature set like this. Plus, looking at the new NAS units, they all come with a bunch of other services like WordPress and OwnCloud. I don't need that bloat. Just quick, reliable storage. Another reason to self-build. I know you guys like Super Micro Hardware. Could you recommend a standard Super Micro Hardware components where I could build something, like, say, similar to a ReadyNAS, fast and reliable, based on FreeNAS, with hardware monitoring for drive health, orange blinky fail lights are required now, so the office remote hands know which drives to replace with a spare. Cheers, Jason. Wow, what do you think?
1: Yeah, um, so the FreeNAS Mini is a standard Micro ATX Motherboard uh, and so on. So it's mostly along the lines of that. Uh, I think the chassis is actually Super Micro, a standard Super Micro chassis. Oh, I was Although, wondering about that. Uh, yeah, you can see, if you look at some of their mini ITX things, you can see very similar look.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm taking a look too at some of the images uh, online. I'm trying to remember my power supply, if my power supply is just a standard power supply or not.
1: Uh, I think it's a standard like server power supply though. Yeah, yeah. I don't I'm know sure. if it's actually yeah. modular. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, but yeah, you can. Uh, you know, IX is the best people to ask this because they will know. You know, if you decide that you want a NAS that is going to have a right. swappable power supply, or maybe, or maybe, for... you know,
0: you could just ask them. <clears throat> you know, what, I'm looking at the back of the thing. It looks standardized. But anyways, yeah. if you just ask them, they might just sell you an additional PSU too that you could just put on the shelf. Just put yeah. it
1: out there. Uh, in general. Um, What you're looking at is, sorry, uh, yeah. If it's the same motherboard, you know, you uh, you can basically build something like the FreeNAS Mini, but in a tower. If you want to just use a standard power supply or something. In
0: fact, there is a blog out there where somebody did just that. I don't remember. There's a couple. uh, Somebody.
1: There's a couple of cheap NAS build ones over on the FreeNAS forums and so Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know, you can actually get. The, I think it's an ASRock motherboard they use in the FreeNAS Mini uh, XL, um, and it, you get that same low-power, quiet um, CPU, uh, Intel Atom CPU, and everything.
0: Yeah, um, that seems like a pretty great way to go. Uh, cuz you know, I, I respect Jason for admitting he wants the dummy lights. I think they're a nice feature too. They really, you know, when you walk up yeah, to Yeah, so it, the downside is I the dummy lights require
1: usually some kind of enclosure management type exactly. stuff. Exactly. Uh, and the Freenes Mini XL is just regular SATA ports.
0: And I I wouldn't expect uh, I wouldn't expect most custom builds either would have that as well. And Yeah, well the the big thing is basically you have to
1: have something that controls those lights. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And mm-hmm. that's a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his idea we, we, Well, basically, in your chassis, you would need something that has, like, a backplane in it. Um, and I, don't, I think some of the super micro chassis might have that, have the actual backplane and hot-swappable drives. Uh, I'm just not sure, because I almost always just buy rack-mountable stuff. But, again, Ask IX, they make tower desktop machines, and they can definitely build you something like a FreeNAS Mini, but in a more standard case, if you... Or like, well, I, I'm fine with giving up more physical space for my Free NAS Mini, mm-hmm. and I could probably build you basically a FreeNAS Mini in a in a bigger case if that's what you're after.
0: If uh, uh, if anybody or in something the with room, an
1: actual controller card,
0: I'm looking right now. If anybody in the chat room knows of any, uh, I'll do some real time follow up in a bit. If you want to give some links, but I think both Alan and I kind of are leading with that you might consider not even as a sponsor part they're not paying for this part of the show you just might want to consider calling ix and explaining to them what your requirements they are. they can answer more questions than i can and uh you might uh, just ask them about including an, an extra psu just see if that's an option it's not like it's out of this world uh, question so cheers jason to you and good luck and let us know follow up actually follow up with the email And uh, let us know. Mr. R writes in about creating a decentralized cloud and wants to ask where to start. Uh, Hey there, Alan and Chris. This is what a few friends of mine came up with. Well, I came up with it, and my friends want to join in. We want to have each other have our own small servers, maybe free NAS based but definitely using ZFS. We want to share the storage with each other as well as with anyone... Uh, Being able to see the others without, I'm sorry, we want to be able to share the storage with each other without anyone being able to see what the other one has stored on their system. This also has the idea that if someone else joins up on the storage cloud, then it would increase. Or if someone decides to add another hard drive, we all have more storage available. Basically, a decentralized storage cloud. What would also be neat is to have some redundancy. Say Alice is up and Bob is down for updates, but Craig Craig and Dave are up, and then everybody can then access all of their files. And, of course, Mallory wouldn't be able to see uh, anything stored on anyone's system but their own, so some sort of network RAID Z would be interesting to do something like this, right? Is this possible? Where to start? What to consider? How to securely comp- compartmentalize all of this? And how do I really cloud? Thank you in advance. Best show on the internet. What do you think, Alan? Uh, so your big
1: problem here is if you're going to do something like RAID Z, that
0: means when you write
1: new data, you don't finish writing until it's sync to all of the drives. And if some of your drives are you know, virtual drives in somebody else's free NAS over the internet, it's going to be (laughs) really, really slow. Um, But basically ZFS doesn't support clustering. So you would have to get some kind of uh, clustering file system like Gluster or Ceph and put it on top. uh, And then, you know, be like, all right, here's a a bunch of storage blocks on my uh, NAS. And then, you know, via VPN or something, you can have access to the blocks on somebody else's, uh, to try to be redundant. And you would have to, you know, Gelly those, uh, first, you know, so you'd have Ceph on top of Gelly, and then, I just it out to the other guys, Nas or whatever. Uh, and it gets awfully fragile pretty quickly when you're trying to do all okay. that. Um, um, hmm. You know, and it's
0: something else. Uh, so, uh,
1: if, when it's files, you don't care if everybody else can see, uh, I've, I've had a discussion with, I, I know some people in California that, Use a certain ISP where they have a subnet where they can all see each other. So they have gigabit uh, internet connections, but there's a second subnet that's just traffic between like the neighborhood or whatever. And they have like a distributed plex setup. That's really cool. Nice. Uh, but in that case, it's all right. Everything that I put in this directory is available to anyone in the neighborhood. Like a BitTorrent kind of sync
0: sync thing kind of thing. Uh, uh, maybe not quite. Okay, I would recommend yeah. a couple of things then. Uh, you might consider uh, doing own cloud with federated uh, own cloud servers, and then the own cloud server's back-end storage would be on a ZFS file system. Uh, okay. This is something, because then you're getting web, web um, front-ends, you're getting the built-in federated and user permissions model of own cloud. That's one option. Number two, like Mr. Jude was just talking about, is like maybe some sort of shared LAN, some sort of shared subnet, quote-unquote. Like something using Tink VPN where each of you install the Tink VPN client and then you create a mesh VPN network. It becomes a secondary interface on your machine and then you could share some stuff that way. Or last but not least, throughout the entire idea, everybody manages their own uh, file system and storage. So you could use ZFS. Someone else could just use their Mac with an external hard drive and just use SyncThing and have folders with different syncs that you share with or BitTorrent Sync or something like
1: that. That doesn't help them so that. I can't see right. your files.
0: Well, you can uh, only... Well, and the you, other thing is, if I add more space to my
1: NAS, I probably don't want that space to be soaked up by Chris.
0: <laughs> right, right. That's true. Uh, so uh, there's a know, lot of ZFS, options, With but.
1: ZFS, you can set a quota on the, this is the storage I share with other people or whatever, but still.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely check out Tink and maybe some other solution for managing the files themselves. All right. Jay writes in with our last email this week, backing up family members' machines. You've got to respect that. Which,
1: this sounds like almost the same question, but slightly Uh, different. Yeah.
0: So, hey, Alan and Chris, I'm a big fan of this show. I've only been listening for about a year, but I love it, and I apologize if this has been asked before, but I'm looking for a system for backing up the machines of family members. I'm a developer by trade and still learning Linux systems administration as I go along, so there are gaps in my knowledge, but I need to learn, so I want to learn what's necessary. With the recent upswing in the number of ransomware and smart malware products, that's the right word, right, out there, I (laughs) thought maybe I'd get a little worried about my parents' machine. So, I talked to them, system security best practices, but now it's time to back up. Uh, And I know they're not going to be willing to pay for backups or anything like that. So both of them are running Windows machines. One is around seven years old. uh, And, of course, it has important files for mom on there, like photos, documents, all that kind of stuff. He's got some backups going to USB drives uh, when they remember to do them. And they don't really want stuff stored up on the cloud or, a.k.a. someone else's computer, They've talked about that before. So he's thinking maybe he could run a machine at his house, run 24-7, and their machines could dial back to it, essentially, and sync with it overnight uh, when no one is using any of the bandwidth. That way I could take images of all of their drives... Uh, the next time I visit, and then just bring a recent backup for the initial build to migrate or to, to mitigate the cost of that initial sync. I'm currently running a bunch of Ubuntu 14.04 machines, so I don't mind repurposing one of those or installing what's necessary. Are there any tools or best practices I could use to set all this up? I'm thinking something like BitTorrent Sync or similar for the upload to my machine. I'd like to have versioning uh, in case I get a call saying that they overwrote or deleted something accidentally. So I'm thinking maybe ZFS or something similar. Any pointers on getting this set up would be appreciated. So is this, yeah. is so, this a Bacula uh, thing? Um, that's Maybe. an option. Yeah, it could be something uh, to consider,
1: right? Yeah. Um, your main issue uh, with this is going to be keeping it in sync and so on. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. And the, uh, the problem with something like BitTorrent Sync is it
0: breaks down when you have a lot of small files. Yeah, it does. It yeah. really trashes the machine. Yeah,
1: because you're doing all the hashing and everything.
0: Yeah, for every um, file and by the time it gets done checking and see if there's any file changed on like the end of a file list, it's got time to start all over again and it just it's awful. Just tie up your computer endlessly. Um Bacula is not a bad option
1: uh, uh, option for this uh, cuz it has transport encryption and everything and then you don't have to worry about VPNs and stuff.
0: Um, Plus you can make uh you know pretty easy restore options for them.
1: Yeah. Bare metal necessary. Uh, so that's that's a decent option. Uh, and it has good support for running on top
0: of ZFS and so on. And if he's an upcoming uh, sysadmin, it's not a bad thing to learn.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a skill
0: to have in your tool belt. Yeah. I think, uh, though, and I think that's the easiest way for Windows. Yeah, the other only, and I know, see, the not backing up to other to the cloud, that that eliminates things like crash plan, which does afford you to sync to somebody else's house as well as do backups. And the nice thing about that is it's just really easy and cheap. Uh, So crash plan. And the other thing, I know you said no cloud backup, but, Jay, if you just considered not backing it up to your house and instead did something like Tarsnap, the nice thing there would be it is encrypted locally. So they're only sending off encrypted files to Tarsnap. That's about as good as it's going to get. So that's just something to consider. Uh, Or maybe use a VPS and not your home computer. That might make things a little more, uh, well, A, faster, and B, More long term sustainable. When you have family members and then you get them hooked on your solution and then you become responsible for that, and then that computer over in the corner becomes something that is linked to your family members' data and you're responsible for keeping it running. And if they have a failure and your backups don't work, you're going to feel like the biggest jerk ever. And anything you can do to make that easier for yourself, faster for yourself, and more sustainable for yourself—if you're really going to do this—if you're really going to be the person that's ultimately responsible for their data now, because it will become your responsibility since you have the backups—consider things that are actually meant for backups. BitTorrent Sync would be a band-aid. Bacula, TarSnap, CrashPlan, maybe a few other options. I think are a way better bet for you. That would be my advice, Jay. Any other thoughts, Ellen? Uh, no. Okay. All right. Well, Jay, also let us know what you do. Uh, and if you guys out there have any, uh, any uh, comments, techsnap.reddit.com would be a good place for people in the community to get a chance to be able to see those. You can email your questions directly to us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or go to the contact page and choose TechSnap from the drop down. we got a couple of emails in the mailbag, but we'd love to have some more for next week's episode. We're back to our regular schedule and need your emails. So go over to that contact page and ask us your question. Now with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup! Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup stories, that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go through it a bit and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our excellent subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first story, <laughs> well, it got a lot of votes and it made everybody giggle. Everybody's felt the pain here if you're running, if you're running Windows 7. The Windows 10 upgrade nag screen interrupts a live weather broadcast. KCCI 8... They have a storm team that was tracking the storm, but they just weren't ready to upgrade. Probably because of the storm, right? And they're busy. Yeah. And so there she is. And uh, they got, uh, she's standing in front of the green screen, and behind her pops up the Microsoft recommends you upgrade to Windows 10. Uh, I wonder yeah. if the, I don't think, uh, there you go. See, it just fades right in there, standing there. She doesn't yeah. even notice at first, and then. <laughs> And then she stops and realizes it's there. <laughs> That's yep. pretty good. I wonder. I got. okay. I'm, I'm uh, actually. And kidding. I heard tell of uh, this
1: happening to some uh, a professional gamer streaming on Twitch. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, you know, yeah, FPS, and you're like killing somebody, and then yeah. just like,
0: blink. and his camera step going.
1: Southwest Iowa. Ah, oh, Microsoft recommends upgrading to Windows 10. What should I do? <laughs> ah, don't you love when that pops up? Huh. <laughs>
0: Oh man! You know what? Uh, I've actually heard from a few people that they find that so annoying, and I agree. It's yep. a it's uh, a mag screen. Worse on mine for a
1: while was the the application would crash. Oh, so no. instead of instead of getting the update message, I would just get. Uh, wx ux or whatever has crashed right and click okay oh man <laughs> every time <laughs> it just so this computer definitely doesn't get that anymore i killed that one yeah, uh, but on my it. tv it comes up constantly on my nut and i'm just like Argh. yeah you know the free upgrade ends like at the end of july so they're, they're yeah, that to- was the other thing i was going to say uh you know if you do have you've been putting it off but you actually want to get the free upgrade you kind of need to do that soon yeah
0: so, next one in the roundup comes from Mr. Krebs. Black Hole yes. Exploit Kit author is getting seven yes.
1: years. If you go back to uh, basically 2015 on TechSnap, there was a lot of talk about this exploit kit and it always having the newest mm-hmm. zero days and stuff. And, uh, yeah,
0: turns out if you get too popular, things happen. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah, I remember talking about that quite a bit. Yep. Seven years. So, this one's a Eight. bit of a bummer. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Now, we're talking about software updates with Windows 10. Now, here's yes. a software update that definitely went wrong. Uh, it destroyed, and I, I do mean destroyed, an almost $300 million Japanese satellite. Uh, the space agency lost 286 million million, three three years of planned observations, and a possible 10 years of science research. Uh, the Astro-H successfully launched on February 17th of 2016. On March 26th, a, cat, a catastrophe struck, leaving only pieces floating in space. JAXA desperately worked to recover the satellite not knowing the extent of the failure on on April 28th they discontinued their efforts and are now working to determine the total extent and reasons for the failure but it looks like the star tracking system and the internal reference unit got bad updates and bad information that they were working off of when they began to disagree on the altitude of or attitude of the satellite uh the IRU took took priority and it was working with bad data and it was reporting the wrong rotation. When it attempted to stop this erroneous rotation using its reaction wheels, the satellite got even more out of wonk. It then went into safe mode. The thrusters took over, also using bad data, and started spinning the thing like crazy. And it flew apart into five pieces. At least that's what we've been able to observe in addition to the main body. Reports indicate maybe as many as ten pieces with two larger and eight smaller Uh, pieces. uh,
1: The bigger concern there is now those pieces are a hazard to other satellites as well. That's a botch. That's a botch. You know, you got to have some rules. You know, uh, when I saw a talk in 2013 about uh, using FreeBSD to control the mirrors for a new telescope, like a huge telescope that's got like Mm -hmm. machine-controlled mirrors, um, you know, it had to react very quickly. But at the same time, it had to have limits so that it didn't try to move the mirrors too fast and break them, right? Because you're actually, like, pushing on the center of a big plane cl- and, like, w- bending the mirror. Mm-hmm. And so, well, you can bend it back and forth. If you go too quickly, you'll just break it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, a lot of these things, you have to have uh, limits on how fast you'll allow spin or something like that. But if you're – if the way you measure it is off,
0: it's like, oh, yes, we're spinning nice and slow. And you're going, like, woo, 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 It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I hadn't heard about this next story. I guess what.cd uh was fully uh, is fully pwnable now. Yes. Uh so what.cd um
1: when is a torrent site, but you have to answer a bunch of like audiophile questions in an interview before you can have an account. They're very specific about the type of people Lead. they want on the site. Uh but their password reset system uses the mt underscore rand function, which is not good. Uh, and so by just observing the site for a while, the attacker can figure out what the seed was and uh, be able to generate the same random numbers and basically be able to spoof the uh, reset token and be able to reset the password for any account, hmm. like the administrator account. And then they could give themselves lots of upload credit so they, they, wouldn't have to, uh, so they could download more stuff huh. or take over the site in any way they wish.
0: Well what a week for Bitcoin. Craig Wright is not Satoshi Nakamoto. Not only have we linked to the technical proof of why he's not Satoshi Nakamoto, but he actually today said sorry and he's leaving. He didn't say he's not Satoshi Nakamoto. He just said he's not going to prove it. He took down the pages on his blog and put up a sorry and goodbye post. So yeah, this week Which we is were, like the third time he said goodbye. <laughs> yeah, this week we have gone from This man is Satoshi Nakamoto, according to the BBC, to I am not. Well, this is the third person they've tried to claim, and this is the third time they tried to claim it was him. And It is really something. Yeah. Uh, What was more interesting about this particular case with Bitcoin, just to do a mini Bitcoin blaster really quick, Gavin Andreessen and several others, uh, like the guy behind the Bitcoin Foundation, the founder of the Bitcoin Foundation, met with Craig Wright in person and walked out saying, I think it is Satoshi. And Gavin took a ton of heat for this, still continues to have taken a bunch of heat. He's losing a bunch of credibility in the community and had his commit access revoked to the Bitcoin GitHub over all of this.
1: Uh, so what's interesting there is likely comes from a misunderstanding of how the signature stuff works. Uh, so, uh, showing that, you've signs of, uh, that you have something that's signed isn't the right proof. The real way to prove it is some other person provides you with some text – and you, to prove you have the key, sign that text that you, don't, you didn't get to pick. It's the same reason why when the real uh, Nakamoto started the Bitcoin blockchain, it's based on the headlines from that day's New York Times or something. I forget the exact details. But the seed is actually a fixed thing like that so that it could be proven.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I had a sense from the very beginning uh, – but what did kind of make me stop and take pause is when, when Gavin and some others thought he was legit, and I thought, well, they should have the technical understanding, like the BBC getting fooled. Sure, yeah, they don't have. Uh, I don't know. I felt like there was when, when something the really more, smart
1: people I know say they could have invented Bitcoin in their sleep, I'm like, oh, well, then it's not that
0: strong. <laughs> I well, I look at it and I go, <clears throat> there's something else going on here, but. Well, not know. So, tell me about this PDF we have linked in the roundup. Ah, yes. Uh, so, this one is
1: just from a, a professor at Princeton, actually, but it's a CV of failures. Uh, so, you know when especially when you're in a position like you're a successful professor at a university or something, everybody thinks that you must be really good at everything <laughs> uh, or that, you know, that you're really, like, you really successful. <laughs> so uh, this is a CV so of failure. So <laughs> he, he, he fed up basically, you know, his resume looks all nice and he's got all these things he's done. But then he has this CV of failures and is basically a resume of all the things he's tried to do and failed at, like all the papers he submitted that didn't get accepted to different journals or all the jobs he's applied for and got turned down.
0: <laughs> meta failures is actually this CV itself. This darn CV of failures has received way more attention than my entire body of academic work. <laughs> yeah. So listing all the things he's failed at got more attention
1: than all the things he's ever succeeded at.
0: I like them. I like the labeled as a meta failure, and the CV itself is now listed as one of the failures. That is that's that's great. That's a great link for you guys. Uh, it's in the show notes. Um. Here's what headline for you. This German nuke plant is infected with computer viruses, and we're all going to die. Actually, it's fine, because the systems that are infected, get ready for this, aren't connected to the Internet, the station's operator says. What a concept. The viruses include uh, Win32 Ramit and ConFlickr. Yeah, ConFlickr still out there, still getting... Yeah. So when I
1: worked at a non-nuclear power plant... Uh, it was kind of interesting because we had these two different networks with a big firewall between them. But there was the business side network, which was Windows and, you know, had problems with viruses, whatever. Uh, and even the control rooms had a Windows computer. But the actual operations of the plant were controlled by a Solaris machine, which didn't get any viruses.
0: <laughs> uh, okay.
1: <laughs> look. At the but, you know, like when you give a computer to the guy that sits in the control room 12 hours a day in a shift uh, – The stuff we found on those computers, whether it was just stuff they were reading or games they were playing or whatever, but it was just like, wow, that's a lot of stuff that shouldn't be on this computer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Okay. So tell me about this, uh, getting malware in the mail, according to Krebs. Yes. (laughs) So at first I figured this was just email, but no, no, this is snail mail. So the American
1: Dental Association mailed out uh, these credit card shaped uh, USB sticks uh, for a with, uh, I guess, a PDF file or something on it, like their dental procedure codes uh, for electronic health record stuff. Well, let me just and plug this right in. out. Yeah,
0: it turns out they had some malware on some of them. You know, I'll tell you one thing. We did this uh, Switch competition uh, last episode of Linux Action Show. That's why I don't have a mustache. And uh, the thing that struck Noah and I is I th- he handed out, like, 17 thumb drives to people to just put in their machine. And literally right there at the at the bar, sometimes people would just Oh yeah, sure I'll put it in. And they would just they just plugged it into their computers and reboot people it. People had their computers at the bar? Well yeah, they did. Yeah. A big one too. Like this guy this guy had this big honking gaming laptop and this other person had a Yeah and another person had a Mac. And yeah, there was there was actually quite a bit of laptops. It's Bellingham, so it's not not too out of it. But I was there is to this day I believe, really no concept of how dangerous these things can be because these people were computer savvy enough to bring them to a bar. It was an outdoor bar. I
1: remember uh, more than 10 years ago, maybe even like 13 plus years ago, uh, the story of, you know, I got paid to do a security audit at an insurance company and just dropped a bunch of USB sticks in the parking lot and... Boom, compromised everything
0: yeah exactly that's it was uh, we, we comment on it a little bit it was just like yeah that's just really kind of remarkable that this many people are just sort of blindly trusting us so yeah that's a yeah. cool that's an interesting story so yeah surprise surprise there was uh there was junk on there neat uh, business card looking thing though that's kind of cool yep okay how to set up Wi-Fi with PFSense. I don't have a lot to say about this one but I wanted to cover it on the show for a couple of reasons a lot of you out there uh, using- but if if you
1: like playing with servers and have servers at home. This website, serve the home, has all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. Like reviews of switches that tell you how noisy they are and whether you'd want to have this in your,
0: you know, workstation at home kind of stuff. servethehome.com. So, yeah. Uh yeah. and they have a setting up Wi-Fi PF pfSense. A couple of things I like about this is they they go through specifically the board that they use, the hardware they used, how they built it. But even if you already have all that stuff, and you just want to know the software side of using set up pfSense to be a wireless AP. Uh, they got it all in here, so I wanted to link it in the roundup because I think it's probably something. Yeah, you guys would be interested in how you
1: guys found that it didn't end up in an episode of BSD Now is slightly disturbing. I
0: got the skills. All right, That's so fun, tell, me, <laughs> tell me about
1: tell me about this next link in the roundup. <laughs> yeah, so this is a paper uh, called "Norms of uh, Computer Trespass," and so it basically takes a look at the U.S. you know Computer Abuse Act uh, and. Basically, we have all these different laws that talk about when you trespass in a computer, but what that actually means can vary very significantly, right?
0: Mm.
1: Whether it's like, you know, if you make someone's computer waste time, is that trespassing on their computer? And then how do ad networks not count as trespassing on your computer? Uh, and, you know, if if someone, you know, accesses a file you didn't mean to make public but accidentally did, is that trespassing? You know, we go back to the AT&T wow. case where the guy downloaded some files that they had po- exposed publicly, but there were, no. Oh, those are sensitive and you can't have those. It's like, that well, was trespassing
0: to, in that case though.
1: Well, you know, if, if you leave some valuable stuff sitting on your front porch, it's technically illegal for someone to come up and take it. But then again, in the AT&T case, they copied it, not take it. So it doesn't quite fit that analogy. But anyway, it's a academic paper kind of looking at what, looking at norms and decide at what level do we actually consider the that level of trespassing a crime? Good. And what stuff shouldn't be? Good. Hopefully, so that we could update our laws to actually make sense. That's actually. We need strong laws to to punish people who break into computers and do evil things, but we can't have them, you know, being like, "Oh, we're just going to threaten you with two hundred years in prison for, because you looked at this many computers with a port scanner, and that was trespassing." Right. Uh, and, and use that to, to get people to plead guilty for a lesser sentence and so on.
0: You know, I, I played a clip last night in Unfiltered that was uh, the Mike Rogers, the director of the NSA, uh, he was saying something about non-state cyber actors that do something to cyber systems. I can't remember the verbiage he used, but basically he made it sound like anything from attempting to log in to maybe a light DDoS is a cyber aggression, like it's a, it, that is considered an attack. And the verbiage he used made it super encompassing. So it's really important that people are actually considering what the definition of some of this stuff is right now, because the current definition by like somebody like Mike Rogers at the NSA is... Uh, very, very, very broad and a little concerning so i'm good good paper uh yeah. and that quote uh that whole clip uh it 's in the first probably ten minutes of unfilter it's worth checking it out. it was really something uh, okay, next story in the roundup, Google migrates all of blogspots sites to h t t p s <laughs> but there is uh, a kind of a caveat. Just a couple of things aren't working over on the uh, Google blogs. Uh, the announcement is a big uh, accumulation of efforts that has been going on from Google since September. But as part of this, uh, even if you've had it uh, turned off in the past, it will be turned on your account. And some of the issues will be HTML content being loaded over both HTTP and HTTPS connections is not going to work correctly. That's obvious. Uh, however, there's actually probably a lot of features built into the software that that might affect. And blogs on custom domains will not yet receive HTTPS support, the companies, Right, because you would need your own certificate and yep. have to provide it to Google's server for but that. But otherwise, otherwise...
1: <clears throat> Although... Let's roll it out. Because Google usually controls the DNS, at least for that, it might be possible for the Google to issue Let's Encrypt certificates fo- on your behalf. Hmm. Uh, because they, they have enough control that they can inject... The, the file on a url that let's encrypt checks for or add the custom dns wow. entry that let's encrypt. and so google could do it for you <laughs> uh, and then you wouldn't have to deal with <clears throat> well especially with let's encrypt if every 45 days you had to re-upload a certificate to google that would get
0: super annoying mm-hmm. really damn quick mm-hmm. yeah absolutely uh tell me about this critical qualcomm bug that i'm sure everybody's gonna get patched for uh, right away right i away. don't know that much about it i didn't read the whole article but uh
1: yeah, apparently it's a vulnerability that's been in Android for as much as five years, and uh, is yeah. most severe if you're using Android version 4.3 yeah. and earlier, yeah. Yeah. which is a lot of people. Yeah, uh, and yeah,
0: it's uh, this handy. vulnerability allows a seemingly benign application to access sensitive user data, including SMS and call history, and the ability to potentially perform sensitive actions such as charging. <clears throat> I'm sorry, changing system settings or disabling the lock screen.
1: Yeah. I can just uh, picture the FBI disabling lock screens.
0: <laughs> but I guess what's interesting about it is uh it's a bug in um <clears throat> it's a bug something to do with Qualcomm. Researchers said yeah. the vulnerability can also be exploited by advertisers who want it, who can, who uh, by, I'm sorry, adversaries, jeez. I'm too hungry. Who could gain physical access. But I'm looking to see the details because ah, it's a, uh, a Qualcomm issue. The bug was first introduced when mobile chipmaker Qualcomm
1: released yeah. a set of programming interfaces for a system service known as Network, Network Manager. Manager. Later, then called Net D Damon. <laughs> right, uh, because network manager is a Linux thing, although both are, you know,
0: Linux. Apple stole my music! No, seriously, that's uh, what uh, James has written about his ordeal with Apple Music. Uh, Apple Music, you are familiar with, is their big service, and I guess it's supposed to have a big overhaul soon. Uh, or, I'm sorry, not James, Amber. Uh, what Amber <clears throat> uh, so, uh, explained was that, which is an Apple rep, uh, explained that... Uh, the Apple Music subscription had, an attempt to upload the music, had then removed them from the hard drive, had deleted them uh, when it saw files that it didn't recognize, which was a big bummer because as a freelance composer, it was music that the author had created themselves. So the fact that Apple didn't recognize it would be expected, <clears throat> and it deleted them. This isn't the first time this has happened when a, uh, Apple Music has deleted a user's locally stored music. Long-time Apple watcher Jim Dalrumple canceled his subscription last year uh, and called it a nightmare after the service allegedly deleted over 4,700 of his previously bought songs. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Hey, it's the cloud. Hey, it is the cloud. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's an interesting because I guess it matches files by using a whole bunch of, like, Different different sets of parameters, and yeah, then if like, it finds at the waveform
1: as well yeah. as the, uh,
0: and then it tries the to file. find a better version up in the cloud, and it removes your local version, and then well, you can probably guess that's where the problem yeah. begins. Uh, malware taps Windows God Mode. What? What? Yes. <laughs> so um, going back to like Windows
1: ninety five, mm-hmm. um, Windows has a couple of compatibility d- like device type things like. Uh, it has something kind of like dev null. Okay. And it has the com ports. Uh, so apparently, this malware figured out if it uh, uses a certain Windows API to create a file in the app data directory and calls it com4,
0: you can't delete it. Because <laughs> Windows is like, you
1: can't delete that. That's a device.
0: Uh-huh. That's adorable. Yeah. So just, uh, I'm
1: going to. If I- you run this ridiculous command at the bottom there, full of like a UUID. Uh, apparently you can actually delete the malware. (laughs) But uh, this undeletable malware is a pretty interesting trick.
0: That is good. com 4 everybody. That sounds like... I remember on Windows
1: 95, there was a reliable way to crash the computer by doing something with like dev null, or it was just N-U-L, I think as they called it, Yeah. and the com port or something. Yeah. If you tried to send null to the com port, it would just blue screen Windows 95. (laughs) I used it for something. I don't Any, like all the computers in my high school or something.
0: I remember I remember there was a way I could remotely crash a Nuke 95 or something like that, where you could remotely crash a Windows 95 computer uh, over the network by sending just like a packet to it. and It would crash. There was a thing of death. Yes. Yeah. So I don't like this story. FBI is harassing a core tour developer, demanding that she meet with them, but refusing to explain why FBI agents are showing up at her parents home, leaving cards and then phoning her mother's cell phone while she was at work a few days later. Uh, She had her lawyer reach out to the FBI agent in question, which got a really kind of odd discussion. Complicating matters was the fact that uh, she was deep into the process of moving permanently to Germany and had just been visiting her family in the U.S. She was worried about whether or not she'd be even able to leave at this point, maybe get stuck here in the U.S. It's very strange. Get out now. (laughs) Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, Tech Dirt goes down and kind of covers all of the back and forth. And if you read the actual back and forth, it kind of gets disturbing and weird.
1: Yes, and apparently I just saw this as a personal warrant canary, and
0: yeah. 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 That's a thing people are doing. That's a thing. Yep. Slackbot token leakage, exposing yes. businesses' critical information. Token leakage.
1: Yeah, so people make Slackbots and then yeah, commit them to GitHub and then realize that their API key is in the config file of a Slackbot that they just committed to GitHub. <laughs> and now yeah. everybody has your API key, yeah, and that is. everybody can see whatever goes on in your Slack.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's actually happens with Amazon keys and a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. Uploading that with your key in there up to GitHub is a problem. It happens all the time. Amazon
1: has a bot that goes and walks through GitHub looking for keys and disables accounts based on it because
0: it happens so often. Well, there you go. Welcome to the Slack bot generation. It's like IRC bots, but in your web browser, everybody. Kind of. Uh, techsnap.reddit.com is where you go to submit stories that might just make it into the roundup jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact is where you go to watch this show or i'm sorry to give us feedback and to watch this show you do that at jblive.tv we are live on thursdays at 1 p.m pacific which mr jude 1 p.m pacific is 4 p.m eastern 2100 utc Sorry, 2100 utc okay there you go also jblive.tv is available but there's also jblive.fm or am if you're on the go or just like to listen on the audio version we have the jb radio standing by and ready so feel free to tune in you can use uh, your phone there's some apps in the play store or just throw in any kind of um, ice cast compatible player and you'll be good to go and we have that at jblive.fm just type it right in boom it'll load it up now Before we go, I will also mention, because it's been a while since I've done it, uh, we have a couple of means to help with this show. You can go over to patreon.com slash today. That helps fund the entire network and helps with some of the equipment we have here to produce this show. You can help download via torrents. We have torrent links in the show notes. You can find those. And you can grab the RSS feed and subscribe and become a permanent viewer. That's always nice, too. It's a nice way to help. Also, Another nice way to help is spread the word or leave reviews in iTunes. If you like the TechSnap program, that's a great way to help spread the word. Let other people find it in iTunes because it juices us up in the search. It's like a little it's like a little trick. That's all I ask. I haven't mentioned it for a while, so I thought I'd pass it along. Alright everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.